These are the things that I learned during the 20th week of 2011, May 15th through May 21st. May 15th, how to slice images and export them to HTML in Photoshop. Oh, nostalgia. I'm going to be disgustingly old for a few minutes. Younger folks just won't ever quite fully know about the Wild West days of the 1990s and 2000s era internet. Let me once again take you back to the past, where common wastes of time included chat rooms, Yahoo Pool, Homestar Runner, GameFAQs, Napster, installing Windows XP service packs over slow connections, YTMND, edgy MySpace profiles, Friendster, Zanga, and ProBoard's internet forums. Before what was once called Web 2.0, the internet was smaller and had more diverse grassroots communities spread across more varied websites, as opposed to aggregates like Reddit. Most of these sites, or forums, would contain all sorts of unique designs, most of which would be considered gaudy by today's standards. There's just this look of the 2000s that is hard to describe, but if you lived through it and saw it, you immediately recognize it. That sort of primitive, consumer-level computer-rendering sheen, brushed metal aesthetic, and of course, over-theming. This was inescapable in those days, and I'd be a liar if I didn't miss it. One trick born out of this era is a method of partitioning and then stitching an image such that you can create clickable links out of designated areas. Possible in a plethora of applications, yet Adobe Photoshop had a unique method of generating them. The features known as Slice and Save for Web, the Adobe Suite, including but not necessarily limited to Photoshop, allowed for easy creation of these composite link maps. You could first use the Slice tool to slice your image up in a way where you defined the clickable regions. Then, you use the Save for Web menu to export your creation. Photoshop would break up the image into smaller files based on the regions you specified, with spacers and code to make it all work. Combined with the additional HTML and supporting files it generated, you were able to use this in the code for your website. I did this in 2011 to create a combination banner image and navigation bar menu out of a single image. My design inspiration was that of Microsoft's then-called Metro design language used in the Zune, Windows Phone, and Windows 8. I designed the navigation menu on the concepts of single nouns written out in large, clear, bold fonts in a word cloud format. The idea was you clicked the word that best matched where you wanted to go and would be a really simple thought process as opposed to the old website's labyrinthian link hierarchy. Doing this via code alone would have been prohibitively difficult, so instead I built it in Photoshop and then generated it as a link-mapped image using the Slice and Save for Web feature. After pulling it up 
and looking at it in modern day, I still really dig how it turned out. In retrospect, I seemed to be slightly ahead of the curve on this design trend. Just a few years later, Apple would take a few design cues from the Zune and incorporate them into iOS 13 with simplistic, flat typography over blank white spaces, with the rest of the industry following suit afterwards. It's been a few years since I've used any version of Photoshop, but based on their documentation page last updated in 2017, it seems that Slice and Save for Web may still be around if you ever want to give them a try, even if that HTML design trend seems to have fallen out of favor. Nobody is stopping you from living in the past, however, so you know what? Go try it if you like it. May 16th. A lot more CSS stuff. I'm not surprised a related thing was learned the following day. In the same vein as the discoveries regarding stitched, link-mapped images, I was brushing up on CSS, short for Cascading Style Sheets, a standard for web page visual design. I was trying to focus on modern HTML5 design aesthetics and easily understandable, portable containerization of web page content. A lot of my inspiration for this kind of web design came from a web design course I took in the fall of 2009, where the professor taught me a lot of excellent tricks for encapsulating sections of pages, which would validate with standards set by the World Wide Web Consortium, also known as the W3C. Over time, I would refine and adapt my own design preferences and establish templates that I would iterate upon, even up to this very day. Two websites I presently maintain use the same basic HTML and CSS structure I used a decade ago. It's just that resilient. I also think I gain a speed advantage by not being fancy and using JavaScript or a content delivery network. I get why those are needed, of course, but for my purposes, I have no business using them, and simple, static HTML sites work better and faster for me, and still look great to boot. In 2011, I was into rounding off hard corners of rectangles, as well as adding drop shadows to give a pseudo-3D effect to the page. I talked about this in a previous episode, but I was also focusing on ensuring smartphone and tablet compatibility as well, trying to adhere to HTML5 standards. CSS isn't that difficult of a concept to grasp, provided you organize your code well and document what maps to where. Within the language, you can name almost anything, as you can assign names to attributes, known as classes, which may be referenced in your regular HTML code. Always comment your code and name things as logically as you can, even if you think it is stupid to do so. Plenty of times you may have it wired to your short-term memory, but if you're away from the code even for just a few short weeks or months, you'll regret not rigorously documenting what you wrote. You never quite realize just how quickly one can forget. May 17th. Press Command-Tab for the application switcher, and then keep holding Command-Down 
and press Q to quit apps. macOS has a lot of power user features, much like this one. Outwardly, one would never suspect this is something that is even possible, and is admittedly a bit esoteric. So first, I think I want to accustom the non-Mac users listening in terms of what this is. If you are using a Windows or a Linux operating system, you might be familiar with the concept of Alt-Tab, which is a window management utility that is invoked by, you guessed it, the Alt and Tab keys on the keyboard. One holds down Alt and then presses Tab to pull up the window switching menu, keeping Alt depressed while pressing Tab to move the cursor over the desired window thumbnail representation you want to switch focus to. Release Alt when the cursor is over the window you want. Later versions of Windows and Linux also may allow you to move the mouse over the window icons and actually click it while holding down Alt. When you have a lot of overlapping and minimized windows open on your screen, this tool works great in trying to find something and quickly switch between programs. Alrighty, we have the general concepts down. Now let's talk about the macOS version of this. On the Mac, as with a lot of Apple conventions, various modifier keys are changed around. On Windows and Linux, you might have Control, Alt, and the Windows key to perform special actions like this. On the Mac, you instead have Control, Alt, Option, and Command. The Command key is physically placed where the Alt key is on a non-Mac keyboard, and the Option slash Alt key is placed where a Windows key normally goes. The fun doesn't stop here. Even more confusingly, the control key on the Mac is not a one-to-one -one representation of the control key in Windows and Linux. A lot of those functions are instead relegated to the command key, which used to be the Apple key on older Apple systems. So some older documentation, and folks who have used the Mac for a while, might be referring to the key as Apple, which helps a grand total of nobody. If you have a muscle memory of Control-X, Control-C, and Control-V for cut, copy, and paste, you're going to have to unlearn that, and instead get used to slamming the command key, which is closer to the spacebar, requiring you to likely use a different finger to hit. Had enough yet? Well, it gets better from here. So the equivalent of the Alt-Tab action ends up being Command and Tab on the Mac. Functionally, the Mac Command-Tab menu works the same as the Windows and Linux equivalents, but there is one extra feature built in for those who are up for some finger gymnastics. While holding down Alt-Er-Command and pressing Tab to move the cursor over to the desired application, one may press the Q key on the keyboard to quit said application. I guess now might be a good time to explain that the Mac also has a slightly different paradigm of window management compared to Windows. The Command tab window will show open applications, but not necessarily represent open windows, so there's a chance that it will not always bring all open windows associated with that application up to the front. Rather, 
the application in focus is changed to the highlighted application, allowing you to perform actions on that application. I ended up writing far more about the annoying little nuanced differences between the Mac and the not-Mac operating systems, and I really hope I didn't confuse you any more, but I felt it was necessary to explain this and air some grievances I didn't realize I still had in my mind until now. I'll try to swing back to positivity to close out this topic. The ability to mass quit applications via this command tab window on the Mac is convenient for when you have a large amount of them open, and it's far faster to command tab queue them than it is to find and right click each one in the dock and select quit. For what it's worth, it is a great power user feature in the end, still available in the latest versions of macOS. May 18th, rubber can be fabricated naturally. Something I definitely forgot about until revisiting it just now, rubber apparently has a naturally occurring existence in addition to the processed kind. According to pedia.com, Natural and synthetic rubbers are two types of polymers with excellent properties that are widely in many industrial and household applications. Natural rubber is a natural biosynthesis polymer obtained from a plant called Hevea brasilensis, whereas synthetic rubbers are man-made polymers under controlled conditions. It seems we have Germany to thank for sparking the synthetic rubber revolution, utilizing methyl isoprene, great for tires or whatever rubbery needs you have. Natural rubber, on the other hand, also known as India rubber, latex, Amazonian rubber, and other names, can be found out in the wild. Natural rubber is used for plenty of things, largely of, but not limited to, the insulation variety is soft, flexible, sustainable, and easy to clean, making it ideal for use in products that will be handled by children. Unfortunately, though, natural rubber's latex origins are also the source of allergic reactions for those who aren't tolerant. Dang chemicals. If you want a not-so-informative yet mesmerizing-to-watch video on the creation of natural rubber from a production standpoint, Check out the video I'll link in the show notes. It's almost like baking a cake if it wasn't edible and wasn't cake. May 19th. You can drag files into the Finder toolbar. Ah, Finder, the Ned Flanders to Windows Explorer's Homer Simpson. The Smiley Two-Face is the primary file management system of macOS. I'm glad this thing learned occurred this week because it goes well with my discussion regarding power user features of the Mac and strange tricks you wouldn't know about unless you went out of your way to learn them. I almost overlooked this as a typo or an error, but after doing a quick search online, I was surprised to find out that this is actually true. You can drag any application, file, or folder to a Finder Windows toolbar and pin it. And no, I'm not talking about the dock. To do this, you need to hold down our weirdo control key wannabe command and click and drag your desired item to the toolbar to pin it. To unpin it, simply hold command again 
and drag it out of the toolbar. I can confirm this still works to this day in modern macOS. I don't think I've ever remembered this long enough for me to take advantage of it, but it seems like a cool feature regardless, especially if you aren't interested in using the dock, launchpad, spotlight, or any other means of opening stuff. I guess Apple has you covered in the toolbar department. May 20th. Margin versus padding for CSS. Where were you when the great margin versus padding wars of the 2010s were fought? Which side were you on? And in the end, did it truly matter? Did we gain anything from all this fighting? In cascading style sheets, there are two similar properties that can be specified on elements which pertain to how space is allocated inside or outside of it. In the simplest of terms, as HubSpot states, a margin is the space around an element's border, while padding is the space between an element's border and the element's content. The margin pushes away its neighbors. Think of margins on a sheet of paper. You know, all of those ones that you wrote for schools that demanded one-inch margins. Now regarding padding, that's regarding the interior of the content as opposed to its exterior. Say I have text inside of a box and want to define that box's padding range that defines how far the text can go before it reaches the edges. This property will let me control that. How you use these elements, of course, is up to you, but understanding the difference between them will make things a whole lot less frustrating. Creative HTML and CSS design often plays with spacing between things, and if you creatively set margins and padding, you can achieve some really cool effects, or break the entire page if you don't know how they work. Such is the importance of knowing the difference. Continuing one of the common themes this week regarding web design, I was learning this when trying to figure out the best spacing between multiple rounded rectangle HTML partitions, and making sure that the text inside would cozily fit without seeming out of place or running aground of the surrounding elements. And now to apply a mild margin between this thing learned and the next thing learned. And finally, May 21st, Sibelius 6.2 on the Mac and installing it. Sibelius is music notation software, largely for musicians and composers. I've heard you can either be a Finale person or a Sibelius person, much like how there are Mac people versus Windows people, or Final Cut people versus Adobe Premiere people. Anyways, Sibelius 6 brought a few new features, such as the magnetic layout, allowing for snapping things to applicable spaces. It also included version tracking and collaboration features. I played around with Sibelius 4 way back in the late 2000s in high school. Admittedly, I'm not that great at using the software and can only plunk out a few incoherent notes. Mozart, I am not. Fast forward to college. Regarding version 6.2, I wasn't a user of the software this time. Rather, I assisted students with installing it at my university's IT help desk. Installing the software was pretty straightforward as far as I can remember. I think there might have been issues if your macOS version was too old, 
or you might have had to invoke the installer as the root user via terminal, as you had to do something similar with the software known as SPSS for the Mac at the time. Other than that, it was smooth sailing with Sibelius 6. Licensing, however, was another matter. Often, we had to point the software towards a licensing server, or get a specific key that could unlock the software for educational use. I have several old documents with vague instructions regarding installing the software, amounting to, quote, just install it. But unfortunately, I never saved any details on licensing it. The most I could find was an official guide detailing how to configure the license server for Sibelius 6.0. According to this guide, one has to, quote, check out a license from the server in order to use the software on a local system. I am unsure if I recall having to do this or not, but I guess it would make sense if that was the method of ensuring the software wasn't just passed around and utilized without licensing and accountability. We did have a bit of an issue back in those times with any software that utilized a limited quantity of server-based licensing. During times of high usage volume, students may not necessarily have been able to use the software and would have to wait until licenses were freed up. I think our terrible method of handling this was that we didn't advertise that the software was available unless one asked. The same guide also has a vague section on installing Sibelius 6 itself, but only for Windows as opposed to the Mac version. There is also a chance that the .2 part of Sibelius 6.2 was a separate patch that needed to be installed after the fact, as was the tendency for software back in the day. And we have reached the end of another week of Things Learned. Extra goings on this week. On May 15th, I bought an Xbox 360 60GB Live Starter Pack from Woot.com. Woot still exists today and offers these flash deals where you can get stuff for a low price, but only for a very limited time. Back then, there were also sites like One Sale a Day and a few others as well. A bunch of these sites no longer exist and one can definitely wonder if they were scams or run by suspicious parties. Woot, however, seems to be pretty legit as far as I can tell. The Xbox kit was basically a nicely sized hard drive for the time, and a few months of Xbox Live included, with a spiffy controller headset that I never ended up using, and to this day sits in a box under my bed. Even back then, I thought the Xbox hard drives were overpriced, and I'm quite certain I bought this $45 bundle only for that, with the other items just being bonuses. Fun fact, the welcome email for Woot.com I got back then reads, If you receive your item and decide you don't like it, take it to eBay or pawn it off on one of your so-called friends. We don't want it either. Ouch. In retrospect... In retrospect, that sounds like a bit of a scary statement for multiple reasons, but I digress. On the 16th of May, I received a welcome email from my summer financial accounting professor explaining how the class was going to work and what the required textbooks were. A summer of pain was upon me, and details on this will be in upcoming episodes. May 17th was the day I moved out of my junior year dorm 
and turned in the keys. It was onward and upward from here. Next stop, the summer sublet apartment, that of which I had a lease from May 15th to August 7th. On May 19th, I submitted to the computer science department a want ad looking for someone interested in ultimately becoming my successor at the TV station as the server manager, as I was going to be entering my senior year and needed to plan the TV station's IT life after I left. The process would be long and arduous, so I figured starting this early would give me plenty of time. I even got an eager reply from someone just a day later. We didn't end up moving forward with him specifically, but it was nice to see interest trickle in that fast. Here's an ancient relic from a dead website. I put in a support ticket to blip.tv on May 19th, requesting they provide an HTML5 video player that didn't rely on Adobe Flash Player. They responded with, paraphrased, We are working on one, but we don't have anything right now. We have a working concept on our iPad showcase site, but it's presently not embeddable. I wish blip.tv had been better. The site was a breath of fresh air compared to YouTube's archaic restrictions at the time. Ultimately, blip.tv couldn't maintain their lead and were too slow to adapt to mobile. There was also the issue of them slowly fading into obscurity due to being outpaced by YouTube itself. They would be purchased by Maker Studios, aka Disney, and shut down. One of the founders, Justin Day, when commenting on blip.tv's shutdown, stated, quote, Ultimately, video is just a really tough business. It was an unfortunate timeline. Anyways, Things Learned is a podcast that is created, produced, written, and edited by yours truly. As always, your listenership is greatly appreciated. If you are new to this podcast, I thank you for giving it a listen, and I hope you subscribe or follow. And if you are a returning listener, I thank you for listening to this podcast as always. Were you particularly interested in any of the things I learned this week? Well, if you are, please check out the show notes for any supporting links or research that I came across when I was trying to remember some of these things. And if you wouldn't mind leaving feedback or a rating wherever you rate podcasts, it would really help in terms of giving this podcast more visibility. And if you think someone would enjoy this podcast, feel free to let them know about things learned. Also, here is something I don't think I have quite mentioned on this podcast just yet. If you were more interested in the tech side of things, as you may have noticed, I tend to talk about tech a lot on this podcast, maybe you would appreciate one of the other podcasts I co-host, known as Hope This Helps, where we talk more about enterprise information technology stuff. Check that podcast out if you feel it would interest you. Thank you very much, and I hope you stick around for next week's episode of Things Learned, and I will talk to you next time.